Well, hello everybody at home and welcome to the Ordinary Church Podcast. We are uh, so happy to be with you today. I'm Connor and I'm here with Mike. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Connor Haas. This is Mike Shera and Connor Haas on the Ordinary Church Podcast. That's right. This is the Ordinary Church Podcast and we are really excited to be with you today. And we are excited because we are launching into what's going to, or a subject that's going to consume the next several weeks for us. And that is a study on uh, the Bible. And specifically, we're going to answer seven questions over the next few weeks uh, about the Bible. So, Mike, why don't I actually read those questions right now, if that works for you? Yes. Okay, great. I'm going to go through those. Listeners, Just we want to give you a preview, and these are going to be covered. We're not sure if it's going to take us seven weeks. Some weeks we might hit a few of these questions, but today I think we're just going to focus on number one. Here's the seven questions that we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. First, why can we trust the Bible? Second, how can we understand the Bible? Three, third, I should say. (laughs) How are we to study the Bible? Fourth, what should we be looking for? Fifth, how do we know if our interpretation is the right one? Challenging question. It's going to be a good discussion when we get there. Sixth, why must we obey the Bible? And seven, finally, what will God use the Bible to do? So that's what's coming, Mike. I'm excited. I hope you're excited too. Very much so. <laughs> Listeners, Very much so, I actually yes. know that Mike is excited. <laughs> uh, so let's just launch into this today. I'm going to uh, kind of open up this first question for you. Question number one is, why can we trust the Bible? And maybe before you even get right into an answer, if you could, maybe just give us some background on this series, why we're doing this, why it's important. Mm-hmm. It's all you. Okay, so I think one of the reasons why we want to do this is because we want to equip people to think and live biblically, okay? And you cannot think and live biblically without a strong belief that the Bible is absolutely true, reliable, trustworthy, our only rule of faith and practice. And uh, it, it, it doesn't just contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And God spoke the Word. He spoke truth we need. And we need then uh, to know the Word, to give it accurately, to understand authorial intent, understand what God is saying in the word, and to really, first and foremost, have a confidence that we can trust the Bible because it's inspired, inerrant, infallible, it's sufficient, it's authoritative, and all the rest. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, well, let's launch right into this then. I want to ask you this first question. If you want, I know uh, 2 Timothy 2.15 is kind of maybe in some ways a guiding verse for us here. But mm-hmm. uh, this first question is, why can we trust the Bible? Why don't you start by just giving us some initial thoughts? Well, the first reason I would give is because it is inspired. It's inspired by God. And, you know, if you look in, you know, you talk about 2 Timothy. Interesting, Paul said to Timothy, you know, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, you know, rightfully dividing or accurately handling the word of truth. And in, in that, you really have kind of the preacher's calling, right? And preach the word and do so where you give it, you, you cut it straight. Uh, you don't uh, do, you know, eisegesis <laughs> where you just, you know, read into the Bible. You do exegesis where you you let the meaning come from the Bible and you just preach what the main point in the passage is. And that's true for living. You need to, if you're, you're just reading the Bible, you want to take it rightly and you, you don't want to twist it. And it's interesting, we get this word inspired from 2 Timothy in chapter 3, 
and verse 16, which says all scripture is inspired or breathed out by God. And then, of course, because of that, it is profitable, right? Paul is saying that it's perfect. Therefore, it is profitable. And what's it profitable for? Teaching, instructing God, instructing people to know God better. And it's profitable for reproof and rebuke, which is this idea of exposing and pointing out sin. It's useful for correction, where it points out sin, but it also offers you a solution to it. And then fourth, it's profitable for training in righteousness, which is the idea of practical application. But you really have to take that step back and say, but it's all because it's inspired. Now, the description here of God's word is the Greek word theopneustos, right? And it's, it's very literally translated as God breathed. So here you have human authors putting the words to paper uh, through their own personality, through their own personal perspective and style. Mm-hmm. But it is God's word. God is speaking and holy men of God wrote as God spoke it, right? And the idea that the ultimate source of the information is not human. It's divine. And this is what gets attacked the most, not just, you know, from the culture or from the world, but from inside the church. Mm-hmm. This is why we're so big on uh, refuting progressive Christianity because it's not Christianity. It's a false gospel. And what they attack or they want to deconstruct is sovereignty and lordship and authority. And authority is where, you know, God is in charge and he gets to call the shots. Now, how does he call the shots? Through his inspired word that has been inscripturated, right? It is in now the the Greek language, by the way, makes it very clear um, that this particular description is is it's a bit layered, okay? And I'm hopefully I can make this point well here, but the Greek root word um, for wind, okay, neo, is spirit, wind, breath. Um, it's a, you know, if, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in John 3, mm-hmm. and he says, you know, the wind blows where it wishes, and you must be born again. You could even say that's a kind of a wordplay that Jesus is using when speaking to Nicodemus. In, in, kind of in a symbolic sense in the Greek, the word Paul uses is the model of the Bible itself because the Bible is the will of God. The Bible is the expression of the will of God formed by his spirit in written form. Does that make sense? I'm following you. I okay. Think. Yeah. The idea that they, like it's, it's even, it explain it kind of illustrates itself. It's like the word of God on paper has been given by God, by the spirit, the, the spirit of God inspired the writers to write it down and that's kind of what Theopneustos is. So God mm-hmm. breathed, mm-hmm. right? And and the way it got to us, so how, we have an English Bible. And some of you might be saying, well, how can I trust my English translation? Because the, the progressives who truly are denying the faith will say things like, you know, um, you know, and if they've gone to schools like Princeton or other places, mm-hmm. they've learned these things well and they get really... They get insistent and they get a little they get a little bit arrogant about these ideas. Oh well, you know, and they'll 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 say, well, what about this translation and that translation? And now these manuscripts were were uh, ruined by this guy and this happened and that happened and, and you really can't trust your English Bible. Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting thing is, 
you can absolutely trust your English Bible because guys like Dan Wallace and others have done so much research on all the manuscripts and and how many manuscripts we have, thousands upon thousands upon thousands that give credence to the biblical message. And it's like, it's it's laughable, those who say this isn't, isn't trustworthy because it's come down this many thousands of years through these languages and now it's in English and it's been adulterated in some way. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's stunning. It's stunning and it's startling how accurate our English translations are to the original manuscripts. Mm-hmm. It's mind boggling. And, and listener, you're just gonna have to take our word for it right this moment. But if you, I got books lining my bookcases here that can explain this. You can look it up. You could probably Google it and find it yep. out too. Yep. It's just, it's just beyond dispute. Mm-hmm. There is no other book in the history of the world that is as attested to its veracity and it's the reality of it and the truthfulness of it than the Bible. Yeah, that's right. And listeners, maybe you've heard people say things like, yeah, well, even still, you know, with that said, with all the manuscripts, there's thousands and thousands of variants. Or, or maybe you've heard something like that. This is a common, a common item that unbelievers will bring up. But it's really, I think, helpful to know that even people who are the harshest critics of the Bible and say that it's all fabricated, and I'm thinking specifically of Bart Ehrman, um, oh, yeah. who is kind of maybe the, what would you say, Mike, kind of the ringleader among kind of atheistic, you know, uh, Bible-opposing um, textual critics, at least, or people uh-huh. who are trying to, you know, attack the text of the Bible. Yeah. Well, anyways, my point was just going to be, even he would acknowledge, and he has acknowledged, that at all points of, of those different variables where, te- where the text might read a different way here or there, mm-hmm. they do no significant damage to and they don't shift in any significant way any primary doctrine of the Christian faith. So right. even when you hear talk about there's thousands of variants and you can't trust these things, well, really, it's, it's the kind of errors that, well, at least if you're like me, you make, you know, you spell friend the wrong way and you switch the I and the E or something. <laughs> it's those kind of errors more often than not. It's not the kind of thing that's attacked or that's going to, you know, deteriorate the trustworthiness of the Bible or make it unclear. So I think that's helpful too. It's very helpful. It, it just, it's just stunning how, how people will literally believe their own mind or some man's mind more than they will the word of God. What in your, I mean, this isn't new, obviously, you know, people attacking the word, but mm-hmm. do you feel like there's a trend towards more hostility against the word and more people who are wanting to walk away from inerrancy? Absolutely. I mean, the trend towards that is growing and growing. And look, it's easy to say, wow, the world doesn't believe the Bible. Well, unbelievers aren't going to believe the Bible, Mm -hmm. you know, not in, in, in in a saving way. But the problem is, and this is where the Bible never tells us you know, go, go, uh, you know, fight the world. The Bible talks about fighting apostasy with, that comes from within the church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people are deconstructing their faith and there's a, there's scripts out there of here's how you do it. And basically here's how you shut off any normal conversation about your life choices. Just tell everyone that this is your truth and that there's going to be no debate and that if they, if they try to change your mind, they're being hateful. That is the most closed-minded thing ever. And these are people that are saying that they're open-minded. And the thing is, is they have rejected authority. They have 
rebelled against God by saying, uh, I have no room for inerrancy. A lot of people will say that today. I have no room for an inerrant, you know, inerrant scriptures. And in fact, I've been looking, I've been trying to find, and I can't find right now, trying to find something that was a, an interesting interchange I read between uh, a friend of mine and someone they know where this person was dropping all sorts of, of um, ridiculous you know, claims uh, that are, are really arrogant uh, against the Bible, and then basically calling the other person you know, self-righteous because they had the audacity to question their their you know assumptions so and i can't find it so you know the whole idea of inerrancy the the reason you can trust the bible is because it really really is true and you know for in recent times the best place to go is the chicago statement on biblical inerrancy right from 1978 Mm -hmm. let me just read you one one um one thing here um on on the uh the uh, the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. It rests on the absolute trustworthiness of God and the Scripture's testimony of itself. You see that? And the idea of a proper understanding of inerrancy takes into account the languages, genres, and intent of Scripture. And we reject approaches to Scripture that deny that biblical truth claims are grounded in reality. Hmm. Did you hear what that just said? Read it again. We reject approaches to Scripture that deny that biblical truth claims are grounded in reality. Yep. The idea that this is true, and it's grounded in reality, and you, um, you've got. To, if you don't, if you don't believe in inerrancy, you basically are going to. Um, are going to just ignore and and reject whatever you don't like. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think the first thing you read actually said something really important, and that and that is that it's grounded in the trustworthiness of God, right? Um, is, is tell me if that, is that what you read in that first one? Something about it's grounded in God, right? Own and you know, I need to correct myself too. And I was, you know, I was um, the Evangelical Theo- Theological Society, which has had its issues. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it was started to uphold inerrancy. Mm. And some people wouldn't know that because in recent years. But they're trying to get back to a a more a stronger stance. I was actually quoting one of the things they said about their doctrinal basis. That they're going to, but it's based on it's based on the Chicago statement of biblical inerrancy. So the the Chicago statement, for any of you that, that are interested, just Google it up um and it you'll find it quickly. Uh, but the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, I've kind of uh, facetiously said to people, uh, let me just, you know, boil it down to to one sentence. The Bible really, 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 really is true. OK, um, and it's just it is just uh, ETS makes this a big deal with they, they have the Chicago Statement, but it's from 78. And let me just go ahead and read part of the preface of it. OK, mm-hmm. of the Chicago Statement. The authority of Scripture is a key issue for the Christian church in this and every age. Those who profess faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are called to show the reality of their discipleship by humbly and faithfully obeying God's written word. To stray from Scripture in faith or conduct is disloyalty to our Master. Recognition of the total truth and trustworthiness of Holy Scripture is essential 
to a full grasp and adequate confession of its authority. And then what they go on to do is say, we are making a statement to affirm this inerrancy of Scripture afresh, making clear our understanding of it and warning against its denial. And basically they have a summary statement. There's articles of affirmation and denial and an accompanying exposition. And so that's what the Chicago Statement has. And if you just, the short statement is five points. I'm going to read these. It's this important, listeners. It's this important. And if you're looking at it, you can go ahead and look at it. Uh, but here's how it goes. Number one, God, who is himself truth and speaks truth only, has inspired Holy Scripture in order thereby to reveal himself to lost mankind through Jesus Christ as creator and Lord, redeemer and judge. Holy Scripture is God's witness to himself. That's the first point. Mm -hmm. So can't get clearer than that. Yep. Number two, Holy Scripture being God's own word, written by men prepared and superintended by his spirit, is of infallible divine authority in all matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Number three, the Holy Spirit, Scripture's divine author, both authenticates it to us by his inward witness and opens our minds to understand its meaning. Mm -hmm. There's illumination. Mm -hmm. And number four, being holy and verbally God-given, Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than in its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. And the last point, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own, and such lapses bring serious loss both to the individual and the church. That last statement, the authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired if this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded. We are seeing that a massive cave-in. You know when you, maybe you're hiking and you see like a, a big sinkhole and it's just like, how'd that get there? It just happened. Some water went down and boom, it went. We're seeing a huge cave-in of epic proportions among formerly professing believers. And the problem is they're saying, and I can still be a Christian and think this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's so true. I feel like those five points are really helpful. And in the coming weeks, as we, I just am in hearing even a few of those things, as we tackle some of these other questions, we'll probably dip back into the Chicago statement at, at a bunch of different points because it's just so mm -hmm. helpful in capturing some of those things. One thing that I was thinking when you're, when you're reading those things, obviously, you know, at some point this all comes back to the God of the Bible. If we're going to mm -hmm. base all of our claims in, you know, for biblical truth in the reality of who God is and how he's inspired the word, then it really all comes back to who he is. And maybe if I could just bring this up, Mike, and I don't want to necessarily spend too long on this, but one thing that's common in our world today, and especially in academic circles, but really a lot of people live their life this way, mm -hmm. is a materialistic, rationalistic worldview, which says that you can only know what you know by way of reason. Right. Was, right. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And so, and so listeners, we don't want to get too in the weeds on this, but I think it's really helpful in thinking about biblical authority to recognize that that, that, you know, claim in itself that we can only know what we know by way of rational, you know, rationalism, reason, 
that is itself a massive presupposition. And everybody who's approaching the world that way is coming to, to reality with this huge presupposition mm-hmm. because there are other ways to know what we know. And we believers would say, we know what we know because God has divinely revealed it to us in the word. Mm-hmm. And so all that to say, you know, we our ultimate reason for trusting the word is not because, oh, we can appeal to the documents, the source documents, or we can appeal to the facts of history, or we can appeal to this or that or that, you know, evidence from reason, even though th- those things can be encouraging. Ultimately, we trust it because we say we reject the rationalism of the world mm-hmm. and we unashamedly say that we're trusting God. So, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Right. Well, absolutely. And to add to that, I would say that this is backwash from the Enlightenment period, right? This is that in the Enlightenment, the one of the tenets of it was that man can get his way to God by unaided human reason. That's absolutely false. The Bible patently den- uh, destroys that idea that we cannot work our way to God. We cannot figure it out on our own. We do not have the capacity because in our dead spiritual state outside of Christ, we can in no way move ourselves to God or understand God in any way. And it's interesting, you know, the whole idea of, of, of inspiration of Scripture and inerrancy and really what we would hold to, which is verbal plenary inspiration. Hodge and Warfield uh, brought this up back in, in 1881, okay, written in the Presbyterian Review, and they're speaking of inspiration. Here's what they say. The legitimate proofs of the doctrine resting primarily on the claims of the sacred writers have not been rebutted by valid objections. That doctrine stands doubly proved. Gnosis gives way to epigenosis, faith to rational conviction, and we rest in the joyful and unshaken certainty that we possess a Bible written by the hands of man indeed, but also graven with the finger of God. And that's a little bit of a hard paragraph for all of us to grasp because it was written in ways that maybe we don't write today. So Albert Moeller helped us a bit on this. <laughs> Al Moeller, he wrote uh, in 2013 uh, an article called uh, When the Bible Speaks, God Speaks, The Classic Doctrine of Biblical Inerrancy. And this is in a uh, in the book uh, Five Views of Biblical Inerrancy, which had counterpoints and what have you. But here's what he said. And he really doubled down, I think, on what Hodge and Warfield said the affirmation of biblical inerrancy is necessary for the health of the church and for our obedience to the scriptures though necessary it is not sufficient taken by itself to constitute an evangelical doctrine of scripture evangelicals must embrace a comprehensive affirmation of the bible as the word of god written in the end inspiration requires inerrancy and inerrancy affirms the Bible's plenary authority. The Bible is not inerrant and thus the word of God. It is the word of God and thus inerrant. And I think that's a, a very key point. God initiated it. God spoke. And he spoke in such a way through humans that he would reveal himself to mankind. Yeah. Yep. Yes. And yeah. amen. No, it's, it's super helpful. And if, if it's really God who's speaking and inspiring the word and God is not a man that he would lie, you know, he never lies. Yeah. Then yeah. at the end of the day, when we're saying we trust the word, we're ultimately declaring our trust in and allegiance to God himself. 
Right. So no, I just I think all of that is super helpful. Okay, um, I do have one closing thought. I know we need to come to a close at this point. Uh, time is running short a yeah, little bit, but I have yeah. one more thought to yeah. throw in, and then we'll pick up the rest next time. Perfect. Okay. You can read all you want about what people have said about inerrancy. Okay. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you or I say. Scripture stands no matter what. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I look in my own life and I think back to when I became a believer in 1982. I was a college student. I was almost 20 years old. And the two revolutionary ideas when I became a believer, convicted of my sin, saw that Christ substitute on the cross is sufficient for my sin and the only he's the only savior and that I needed him uh, to save me from my sins to, to know that he is God that Christ is God and that the Bible is absolutely true was absolutely revolutionary to me because I had been told both things the other I had been told that Jesus wasn't God and the Bible couldn't be trusted mm-hmm. and I say that because only the regenerate can receive the idea of the truthfulness of scripture and inerrancy mm-hmm. and that only the regenerate are the ones that are in danger of falling from their steadfastness. And so interestingly, if you don't, if you're not born again, regenerate born again by the spirit of God, and you don't understand that scripture is absolutely true and from God, then you're not a believer. But if you are a believer, you need to guard against falling from that steadfastness and somehow believing lies. Why are there so many New Testament warnings to not fall away? Don't be deceived. Mm-hmm. Don't believe the lies mm-hmm. because it's true. And, and if you and here's the thing. If you find yourself continuing on in the faith and believing the Bible, that's one more proof of regeneration in your life. Amen. Yeah. No, that's such a good point. I've heard a pastor say, someone asked him, how do you help your people to trust the word? You know, what, how do you do you teach about the authority of Scripture often? And his response was, well, occasionally I do, but more than anything, I just show them what's in the Word. Mm-hmm. And week after week and year after year, as they're seeing it, their mind, it just, you know, bells are always going off. Oh, wow, this connects in this way. And this shows the truthfulness of this. And I mean, with all these different authors and the way that God's inspired the Word at all, it all just comes together in this glorious chorus. And I think that for the regenerate believer, mm-hmm. the best defense of inerrancy is just do everything you can to know your Bible as well as you possibly can. Because Absolutely. the deeper we go, it never disappoints. It always just gets richer and richer. Amen. So I have one little PS, one little final tidbit, and then we'll sign off. Mm-hmm. Just I just remembered I wanted to mention this. Um, let's say you're reading the Bible. You're reading your English Bible, and you come across a, uh, a little note in the margin. And it says, uh, the oldest manuscripts oh, yeah. don't yeah. contain yeah. this particular passage or this particular verse. And I'll give you one example. There's there's several examples in our English Bibles, but John chapter 8, okay? So you, you go to John chapter 8, and uh, and you start reading John 8. And it says right before John 8, the earliest manuscripts do not include John chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. And there's a little, uh, a little um, you know, footnote. Some manuscripts don't include these verses, and others add the passage here after 736 or after 2125 or after Luke 2138 with variations in the text. You're like, wait a minute, does that mean I can't trust the Bible? It is absolutely a great proof on why you can trust the Bible, that the inerrant scriptures 
and the writer and and the and the people that put together our translations will admit that there are certain things that weren't in the earliest manuscripts what it tells you is that everything else was mm-hmm. <laughs> okay and so the the small like the end of of mark and 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 then parts of John 8 and other verses here and there, which is the oldest manuscripts don't contain these verses, which is telling you this may or n- may not be inspired scripture, this this portion. But it tells you that all the rest, it's, it's abundantly there. attested, mm-hmm. which is another proof for inerrancy. Yeah, that's really well yeah. said. No, that's super yeah. encouraging. Okay, well, listeners, we'd love to keep going, and you know that we could always talk more, but we are going to wrap this up here, and we're really excited for the weeks to come, uh, getting into some of these these next questions. So thanks for joining us today. We hope that you have a great week. We're praying for you. Enjoy your time in the Word this week, knowing that it is from the Lord, and we will talk to you next week on the Ordinary Church Podcast. Have a great day.